welcome to the Conscious Culture Cafe, the podcast that explores how you can lean into your purpose, live your values, and enhance your social impact through your work. I'm your host, Kathy Miller Perkins. What are you learning from our current challenging times? Are you taking the time to reflect? My guest today is Jerry Abrams, Envisioneer with the Center for Creative Leadership. Recently, Jerry wrote a wonderful article about how we can learn from what he refers to as heat experiences. He's here to tell us more about this topic as it relates to the current crisis we are all living through, and he will share tips on how we can take advantage of our current heat experiences to learn and to become more resilient leaders. Welcome, Jerry. Let's dig right in. Can you tell me a little bit more about VUCA and heat experiences? Yeah, so VUCA is actually a relatively old concept to the military in particular. It just talks about volatility and uncertainty and ambiguity. And these are things that they began to see and began to plan for some years ago. And so they kind of coined this acronym. Basically, it's just when things are going chaotically. Okay. Well, that's that's now. <laughs> a lot of uncertainty and, and so forth, and ambiguity, and you've just got to try to muddle your way through it as best you can. So that's really what the VUCA is about. And then heat experiences. So heat experiences are those things where that kind of uncertainty is available to be used for learning. So it's one thing that things are chaotic. It's another where those things present the opportunity for learning. What's the difference? What's the difference between chaotic and opportunities for learning? Well, so the difference might be, you know, if it's extraordinary and you really don't have time to pause and reflect and do some things, then there's probably too much stress, too much going on for you to actually have significant learning. The, the point is to stretch you, but not break you. And so if you're to the breaking point, it's probably not time to use this for learning. But if you can step back from it a moment or two and you're not to the breaking point, then you can use it for learning. Okay, so there are probably some people who are at a breaking point, but but there are a lot of us who aren't. So it's going to be interesting to hear what and how we can learn from this experience. Yes, so so let me talk a little bit then about what a heat experience actually is. Okay, great. So CCL did some work a while back, and we came up with basically three dimensions to what we call a heat experience. And so one of them is the challenge is unfamiliar. The challenge is complex, and it creates a fear of failure or some sense of vulnerability in you. And so these are the conditions where heat uh, is available. And then we said, okay, there are sort of levels of these things. So not all heat experiences are equally intense. Okay. So low-level heat is there's a known problem and there's a known solution. That's probably not very hot in the sense of heat that we're talking about here. Known problems, but unknown solutions, we would say that's a level two, and that's more heat. And then the most heat, level three, was where there are unknown problems and unknown solutions. Bingo. (laughs) You you can imagine that, you know, that's a lot of complexity. Yeah, no kidding. And so managing that complexity is really what the opportunity for learning is. 
So where are we in terms of the levels now? What, what are the characteristics of the circumstances we're facing now that qualify? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, overall, you could find examples of all three of these. So for some things, like we know what it takes to solve a certain kind of problem medically. We know what it takes to do certain things epidemiologically and so forth. In other cases, we don't know. We don't know what the solutions are. So we know what the problem is. The virus has certain impacts on the body, but we don't necessarily have a solution at the moment, i.e. we don't have a vaccine, we don't have good treatments. But we have some sense, at least, of what goes on in the body. We don't have complete sense. Obviously, there's much more work to be done. Part of what makes it novel is we've not seen it before, so we don't study it. But it's analogous in some ways to other coronaviruses, and at least we assume it is. And then on the economic side, you know, we've seen downturns. And in fact, if you go far enough back to other pandemic situations, which have existed, although nearly 100 years or more ago in some cases, you know, we, you can look back at history and say, well, we've gone through something like this, but it's the, the lessons maybe are long gone in some cases. So, you know, then there are the things that are just unknown. Like we've actually never shut down an economy that's this interdependent. There's lots of other things now that make, even though we've done shutdowns before for different reasons, this one's different because the conditions in which the economy is operating is different. Say more about that. What's different about it? What makes it so unique? Yeah, so again, I think the largest one really is the interdependence, and particularly in the supply chains, right? You know, things come from all over the world. And so as this thing has unfolded in different parts of the world, it's had different, different impacts on different parts of the supply chains. And that then works down locally. You've got supply chain issues inside different countries that have different challenges. Then you talk about different categories of supply chains, you know, food, medical, other kinds of device support, other things. So there's just this really complex, interdependent global. And then you layer on top of that the political, right, because (laughs) there is not necessarily alignment between all the political bodies that own parts of the supply chain. Right. right, Where that supply chain lives and operates. One of the things you said a minute ago is that we know what the problems are, at least to some degree. We know how the virus affects the body and so forth. But one of the things that's been interesting to me over the last few days is that new issues seem to be cropping up. There are new issues with kids, for example, new symptoms that are cropping up. So I'm not sure that we know what we know and what we don't know at the moment, which adds to the complexity, I would think. It does. And and then if you sort of zoom out for a minute and say, okay, there's a leader, there are workers somewhere in the world that may work for that leader in some way. And then there's this third thing called social media. Oh, yeah. And, and other media sources, which now are impacting beliefs and values and behaviors on the workforce which the leader now has to respond to, and, and there's politicians. Yeah, so it's just right. gotten all the lack of clarity and in information, the misuse of information, the way in which social media has played into this. And, and it's not that there was not misinformation in previous settings and other places, but the speed and the amount of misinformation that is possible with the distribution systems that are in place around social media make this, I think, a more complex problem as well. How should leaders be addressing this or even thinking about this? The level of complexity seems overwhelming. How should leaders learn? What should they be doing? Yeah, so 
again, some research from CCL, some of my colleagues there, and in partnership with Columbia University and the teachers college inside Columbia University. Spent a couple of years studying this whole notion of learner agility and how can you make people, leaders, better able to learn faster, basically. And, and the, you know, the thinking was then, even then, before this grand crisis before us, that things were changing fast enough as it was. We didn't need a pandemic. Really? No kidding. Right. You know, so we were going to look at, you know, well, what can you do in times of such accelerated change? And the, the term that came out of all of this was learning agility. And really, that's sort of a, a mindset or a collection of beliefs and some practices that reinforce agility. And then there's one that kind of works against agility that they identified. And so those four things really involved in this uh, learning agility are innovating, which is defined as questioning the status quo and challenging assumptions to uncover new ways of doing things. The second of the enablers was what they labeled performing, which is remaining present and engaged under stress. So you can see the relationship of learning agility to heat here, right? So oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and basically you need to use you know, keen observation and listening skills as well as the ability to process data quickly in that performing capability or practice. Then there's reflecting, which is basically being hungry for feedback focusing energy on processing the information and generating deeper insights. And so you can see now there's heat, there's questioning, there's reflecting where you're beginning to transform some of that stuff into some insights. And then there's this last one called risking, which is basically, you know, you have to put yourself out there. You have to venture into unknown territory. You've got to be uncomfortable with sort of progressive risk. And this is the stretching outside your comfort yeah, zone. Right. And really, this is that difference between stretching yourself and breaking. You don't want to go to the point of breaking when you're putting yourself out there, but you do want to stretch yourself. And then the last one, that practice that I said works against learning agility, is called defending. And basically, it's being closed or defensive when challenged or giving critical feedback. So... You know, if, if you don't take critical feedback well or you get defensive when someone challenges your ideas or, your, you know, you and your position on something, that's working against your learning agility. I can imagine. And, you know, when I hear you talk about the four enablers, there's a lot of discomfort that comes with all of them, really. And, I mean, for example, on the performing one, remaining present and engaged under stress, that takes a cool head to do that. That takes a lot of self-control, self-awareness and self-control. I would think that would be hard for a lot of leaders who are used to being in control because in this uncertainty, they're really not in control. So it seems to me this will be a new experience for a lot of leaders. What, what do you think? Yes, I think that's right. And of course, there's a lot of research, some of which CCL has been involved with and others have as well, around resilience. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, how do you build resilience under stress and prepare for stress? And so that's really the kind of thing you could apply to develop some of that performing capability. And, you know, you'll see things like mindfulness and meditation and other kinds of, you know, ancient arts, really, that have been around forever in certain places of the globe, not, not as much in the Western world until recently. 
And so those kinds of things, as well as you know, some basics like eating well, sleeping, getting exercise, all those things help build resilience and make you uh, less likely to be stressed and, and to respond to stress. So, you know, again, in the stress literature, you'll see things called eustress. And eustress is good stress. And it's about how do you transform things that appear stressful into positive events and energy for you. Oh, interesting. And it's about how you respond to it mostly. So you can find a lot of work out there that's been done around stress and how to prepare better for it. And so is that research saying that this is intentional, that it needs to be intentional, that someone who wants to become resilient needs to become, what, more self-aware of when the stress is starting to make them anxious? Or what, what are the lessons for leaders? Yeah, so I, I think that's right. There, there's a whole range of things that leaders you know, need to do. And, and obviously, beginning with paying attention to yourself, your body, what is your emotional response? How is that showing up in your physical response? And it turns out that we all have sort of a native baseline, if you will, to how, how reactive we are. Really? Interesting. You can change it over time, but if you were to measure it at a moment in time, you're somewhere along a spectrum from you know, very calm and collected to very reactive. Oh, interesting. So individual differences. Very interesting. Yeah, huh. there are. Yeah. So why is learning agility relevant now, do you think? Yeah, so I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier, which is that there's just so much ambiguity and uncertainty right now. And so if, you know, where there is level two and level three kind of heat in the real world, that's where you need to start learning. And in order to do that, you know, you can't be in panic mode. You've got to be reflecting. You've got to be present and paying attention. And, and then you've got to be questioning the status quo. So you've got to do these four things. And so there are these massive upheavals in the economies. There's massive uncertainty around the health pandemic itself. And then finally, there's a lot of uncertainty in human behavior. So how are people responding to the information, good, bad, or truthful or untruthful they're getting and reacting to? And unfortunately, for everything to happen, even under the best laid plans, you need something called compliance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something that we're not very good at in this country sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so, so a lot of us have seen some videos of non-compliance around the country at different moments in time. And so you might have the best strategy, but if you can't influence people of all ages and purposes and religions, faith, political orientations, or whatever you can imagine to comply, then, you know, that plan is compromised. There's a lot of unpredictability here, of course, and complexity then around the human behavioral response to any plan you come up with because of who they are, the information they're using, the beliefs they hold. And so all of this complexity means you've got to be continuously learning and adapting from whatever baseline plan you start with. What a challenge. What a challenge. Have we ever seen anything like this before? You, you referred earlier to the fact that this is not totally unique. I would say elements of it we've seen before. We've seen pandemics. We've seen pandemics more recently in other countries we can learn from. We've seen a, you know, a major global pandemic of the greatest scale imaginable, I guess, in the late 1900s, you know, early 1900s, I mean. And so, you know, some things we've done, we've done 
shutdowns, we've done masks, we've done, you know, social distancing kinds of things. And we've seen all the non-compliant behaviors as well. I mean, a lot of the same things happened then as are happening now. Really? Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, if you go back and, and dial into the history of it, you'll, you'll see some of that. I think in some ways, you know, we've looked at economic turmoil before we had the big downturn in 08. We've had other minor recessions or major recessions along the years. We had the Great Depression in the 29, 30, 31, 32, 34 range here in America mm-hmm. and globally. So we've had economic downturns of great significance before, and we've seen what some of the social implications of those downturns are. So we know, you know, from a health perspective and a societal perspective, what what the turmoil can be there. But again, conditions are not identically the same, and you need to learn from that, but also modify your learning at the same time. Well, so as you think back about those other circumstances like the 08 recession or the Great Depression, did we learn? Did we learn? Did we come out of that? Did we change? Did we transform as a result, do you think? Or did we go back to our old ways? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. So, you know, there's another period of time that uh, people lived through of high inflation in America. So the Depression was one big era. Recently, if you consider 1929, recently, I guess. Yeah, well, (laughs) it's all relative. (laughs) Then you consider the 70s. If you can find people who who lived through the Depression that's still around and talk to them, if you maybe had a grandparent or a great-grandparent who was around and you remember, they were permanently changed in many ways. You will find that they would stockpile canned goods, that they would clip more coupons than you ever dreamt possible Oh, yeah, right. Of course. Right. You know, they would reuse things far more often than you would today. You know, we've become. And so I would say that for a a great period of time, maybe a generation, 20 years or so, that depression impacted a, a large amount of consumer behavior. I would say in the 70s, when inflation was, you know, running in the 20s, in some instances, it affected whether people saved or not, because it was like, there's no point in saving. Your money's going to be worth less tomorrow than it is today. And the thing you want to buy, you know, you just got to spend, spend, spend. And you're not going to be able to afford the house you want anyway. So you might as well spend it on other kinds of things, goods, consumer goods, and so in experiences or whatever. So yeah, I think certain social conditions can change the way we behave, certain values. I, I wonder about this one, whether it will cause value shifts. And if you look at value shifts generationally, you know, were there values that were latent maybe in younger people that are now just being given more evidence for being expressed? Are there seniors maybe that are at a different stage of life that would go back to certain values and say, oh yeah, you know, maybe this, maybe that. So I am curious about the impact on value shift by generational. And a lot of that has to do with what their social economic status is at the moment. We know there are a lot of challenges with younger people and advancement and jobs and all those kinds of things that are socioeconomic conditions. But all of these things are in, in the background, they're latent, and they'll find their way into the expression of values that are now, given this challenge, being revealed in different ways. And so you, you can see these things showing up. It seems like all the people that I'm interacting with these days are saying, oh, this is transformative. We are going to be so different coming out of this. And yet, I'm not really sure. 
<laughs> whether we will be. Yes. So I agree. And I think we don't know in what ways we will be. So I think this is the problem. You know, humans tend to over and underestimate. <laughs> I guess yeah, really. That's I a good. It. Well put. Well put. You know, in other words, like if you look at the volatility in the stock market, you know, it'll have a great day and then it'll come back from that a little bit the next day. It'll have a great day and it'll come back from that another day. And so there's this tendency for people to not step back necessarily and ground themselves in, okay, what's really you know solid that I can base some judgments on and what's transitory. And I don't think at the moment we know yet. And a lot will depend on how this thing continues to play out. We could have another significant bump in the fall, which we could have another one in the spring. So you can imagine having not necessarily equivalent, but another cycle in the fall, another one in the following spring. And, you know, somewhere down the line, maybe treatments and a vaccine or some herd immunity emerges from total exposure and an, an unfortunate level of loss of life that by some time, you know, mid, late next year, the economic impact is, is minimal, but then you're, you're catching up for all that lost time that the economic upheaval has caused. Then you get to this new normal from around work. Well, yes, I think a lot of people and a lot of companies have discovered that more people than they ever thought possible can work remotely. Yeah, I know. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and that more people than they may want to admit want to work that way. Yeah, really, really. And no so, kidding. yeah, I, do I think that it's going to, you know, cause a reset in points of view about remote work and productivity of remote work and what a whole bunch of tools and processes emerge to support remote work that will make it better? I do. I do. Right. I've been doing virtual group process facilitation, designing processes, using technologies since 97, 98. So I've been doing a lot of virtual work over the years and know what some good processes look like for asynchronous and synchronous work uh, with groups. What it looks like for individuals trying to accomplish a task is a different matter and it needs, you know, its own set of tools and its own set of processes. And then there's the, you know, figuring out, well, what does the social aspect do like that? And, and of course, there's been this trend for a while, particularly in the IT space. You know, they've sort of been the leaders of telework and other kinds of remote work. But in some cases, telework was you went to a workspace somewhere. Yes, right. Right. Not your home. You had some social interactivity with other people because we need that or some people need that anyway. Yes. I've been a telecommuter for eight years. and. I would frequently go to a coffee shop and sit there and work, not because I was going to talk to a soul in there, but it felt better to be around another human. I saw it. I think it was a joke or a cartoon somewhere that said something along the lines of, who knew we didn't need all those meetings after all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Meetings are a favorite topic of mine, and I know a hundred jokes are around them. You know, I spent a long time focusing almost exclusively on improving group processes. And so using technology to minimize the downsides of behaviors in meetings and maximize the efficiency of tasks. Well, maybe people start paying more attention to that now. <laughs> Let's hope. We hope. We, we hope. So, yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about 
leadership lessons. You argue in your article that, and I think it's based on CCL research, that the lessons of experience are more effective than formal leadership development. Can you tell me more about that? Absolutely. So yeah, this is actually some of CCL's earliest groundbreaking research. So CCL's got a long history of, of groundbreaking research, the first in the world to discover something about leadership and leadership behaviors largely. And this is one of those things that's, you know, more than 30 years ago began and has now been validated and revalidated across a number of studies and a number of cultures around, around the world and just keeps showing up. And it's basically this thing that a lot of people now know, at least in the HR world where you know, CCL is well known for the kind of work it does, that, yeah, 70% of, of leadership development comes from the experience as leaders actually have. 70%? Really? 70, yeah, 70. In some, wow. cases, in, in some cases, it's been a little higher and occasionally it might be a touch lower. But on average, you know, globally across all these studies uh, and the rule that everybody remembers now, we probably would have a hard time going back and changing it because it's out there in the culture is really the 70-20-10 rule. And so, yeah, 70% from challenging assignments. So again, going back to, this is linked back to learning agility, stretching yourself, right? Or going back to heat. All these things are related. This is why they all showed up in my article, because there are links between all these different pieces that DCL and others have been involved in now over the years. And we've just kind of yeah, refinements on, extensions of, some of this stuff. And so some of the earliest work around this area is really in this, how do leaders develop? It's a, a key question, obviously. You want to know how do leaders develop. And so the last 10%, it turns out, is from formal coursework. So sending them to a program or doing <laughs> really? a program or whatever you want to think of it as. Yeah, so that's that's the 70-20-10 rule. And of course, What's underneath this is this sort of core assumption that CCL has lived by from the beginning, and it's really deeply baked into every aspect of what CCL does. And it's this assumption that leadership is learned, leaders are made, they're not born. Yeah. And so, you know, that's really a a core belief that's been proven by this kind of research here, that it's the right way to go, that that you might not start out being a great leader, but you can become one. And along those same lines are things like, you know, no matter what your personality might look like, you can learn to be a good leader with that particular personality. Now, there are some, obviously, things that you can do that are so derogatory, you just are not going to be effective unless you leave them behind. But in general, there's no right type for uh, personalities because you can learn to be a leader, and that means you can flex from wherever you are. Now, is it harder from some places than others for certain kinds of behaviors or certain kinds of activities? And how do you do it? All those kinds of things. Great. You know, if you're not naturally organized, maybe you learn to use a day planner, you know, those kinds of things. If you like to have really open, long-term decisions that take forever to conclude, you know, maybe you learn to apply some processes and criteria to that to improve that process. So there are things you can do. But basically, you know, leadership is learned. Leaders are made. They're not born. And learning from challenging assignments is 70% of how they're made. 
And yet, companies spend millions of dollars on courses and training seminars to, to train leaders. Isn't that interesting? Why is that, do you think? Yes, and, well, because there's measurable evidence that it works to some extent. You can control it, the timing of it. You can make it available to anybody and everyone. So unless you create heat artificially, and believe me, there are ways you can do that, and CCL and others do do that. So you can create experiences that turn up the heat for a week or three days or a couple of days in a training session, and people will learn from that. What the beauty of experience is, is that typically the heat lasts more than a couple of days. There's more heat available longer for development. But, you know, we, we use and have used forever simulated activities where you might be running an organization or you might be doing something that is more abstract than that, but puts you in an uncomfortable place, creating heat that then you can learn from. I mean, I would say that that's actually a, a core principle of any of our experiential activities is that we're taking you out of your comfort zone long enough for you to observe yourself out of your comfort zone and or observe yourself in your native habits and then reflect back on that. And so that's the use of of experiential activities, whether they're full-blown business simulations, which tend to be more extensive and provide an opportunity for greater heat longer, or whether they're a 30-minute exercise that can be intense, but it's only 30 minutes. Yeah, right. And how long does that last then when the person goes back to the job would be the, that's always an interesting question for all of us who do leadership development. Yeah. So really the impetus behind the article was don't miss this opportunity. There's all this heat. Take advantage of it as one of these experiences. If you can, if you're not to the breaking point, you know, again, you got to be careful that, you you know, you don't place yourself in this point beyond which you cannot come back. You're not, you're not stretching, you're breaking. But use this opportunity to learn. And it's not only good for you, but it's the kind of thing you would do to improve your organizational response, right? In other words, what can we do better next time as an organization? So without even worrying about me developing, but just focusing at the organizational level, like what processes could we do better? What organizational decisions could we make better? Those kinds of things, much less, you know, my personal leadership behaviors and my interpersonal relationships and my decisions and, you know, all those kinds of things that are more about my leadership. You know, you could do both. You can apply this kind of learning to both and it's valuable for both. But it doesn't happen automatically, right? We don't learn automatically from experience. So what what do we need to do to learn? Yeah, that's been the great challenge, right, for a, a CCL or anybody else in this field is, okay, how do we get people to learn? Right, we know, exactly. We know we're having those experiences. They're learning from them, and we all do. You know, you, you stick your hand on the hot stove, you've had an experience, and you learn. <laughs> yes, okay? exactly. Right. We've had those, but most of us are not doing it very methodically. It's kind of haphazardly, and it's sort of intuitive. It gets baked in somewhere, and it's back there, but it's not very formal. It's not very methodical. It's not very efficient, and therefore, it's probably not as quick. Yes, exactly. Right. And it's not necessarily documented, so you can refer back to it later if some kind of circumstance comes up again. So there are all these challenges you know, around learning and, and being mindful, if you will, about 
explicitly learning from experience. And so that's really was, again, there's this opportunity. We've got a lot of heat. Let me give you some ideas on how you can use the heat to learn. Great. That's exactly what we need. And so in between was all this other stuff about, you know, learning agility and, of course, that being valuable and its relationship then to learning from, uh, you know, challenging experiences. So all these things are linked. But the, the bottom line is, okay, so what do you do? You know, you, the heat's here. I'm having experiences. And I, I do want to learn. I'm not to the point of breaking. I am stretched. And I want, to, I want to learn. I want to become more effective. And I want my organization to become more effective. And so I'm very familiar with an approach that began with the, the Army the, 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 and probably in the 60s, basically. And they did this thing called an after-action review. They would do it typically after any activity. It might have been they went out on patrol for four hours. It might have been a full day. It might have been several days. It might be a whole month or more in their case of things they were doing. And then they would step back and go, okay, what was supposed to happen here? So there were these sort of four questions they routinely asked themselves. What was supposed to happen? What actually happened? What were the differences between what we thought would happen or what was supposed to happen and what actually happened? And then what can we learn or what did we learn from those differences? Oh, that's so, wonderful. You know, what, what I did is I said, that's a great learning tool, and I've used it with teams forever. It's a great way for teams to do for themselves collectively to get better at some period in along the way on a project team. They might stop and do that after every major inch stone or milestone or whatever, however they measure progress. They might do it, you know, by whatever frequency that makes sense for their team and what they're doing. So I've been using it as a team tool forever. But, you know, there's no reason it can't be used as an individual tool. That someone could use that same simple four-question process to reflect with great periodicity and then look back over some trends and things like this with, you know, maybe less periodicity and really be meticulous about learning. But short. Because the other thing is, we know you don't have a lot of time. You don't have an hour at the end of the day. Right. You don't have two hours at the end of the day to stop and try to figure out what the heck happened. Not now. Not in the kind of heat we're in right now. And so it had to be short. It had to be easy to implement. It had to be something you could repeat and simple. And so I converted those four questions, basically, into individual versions that someone could use. And, and they look like this. You know, What did I plan? or intend to do or accomplish today, question one. What did I actually do or accomplish today? What were the differences, good and bad, and why? So one of the things about after-action reviews, you want to capture the good things as well. So sometimes, oh, absolutely. A, sure. sometimes a difference turned to you got something better done than you expected. Yeah, <laughs> that's such. A, that's a good day. <laughs> but, but you did something different than you thought you were going to do, and the outcome was better. Sometimes the outcome is worse, and so you want to capture both of those, so good or bad. And then similarly, you know, what should I do differently, or similarly the next time? So just capturing these things, those four questions at the end of the day, takes maybe you know five to fifteen minutes to do that. Are you talking about writing it down? You know, yes. I mean, writing it down, whether you do it longhand in some physical book 
or whether you do it in a, a space of some kind on a computer, you know, wherever you do it. Yes, daily. And the reason for that is that what you want to do now is at the end of some period, probably a week, whatever your work week looks like, sometimes it's seven days, sometimes it's less, but whatever that, that week is, take a minute now and look back over what you wrote for those days and just try to identify some things that are popping out that, are, that either look like themes or stand out as being more important than the other things. Because what you're gaining over time is perspective, right? What looked important today may not be as important tomorrow and might not be even as important later, or it might be more important. And so time gives you perspective as more experience piles in there. So at the end of the week, stop and write down what you see after looking across those four questions. You don't have to answer the questions again, but you're looking for now what stands out, what are some trends, uh, what seems important, what seems less important, and some why around that. So this might take 30 minutes, maybe at the end of the week, something like that. So still not a ton of time. Now do this again for another week, another loop through, you know, daily capture at the end of the week, you know, look back, capture. And after a month worth of weeks, whatever that is, you know, four weeks, five weeks, however you want to chop it up, stop now and look back across, first of all, the weekly summaries, and glance at the dailies, you know, sort of take a scan now back across the entire month and do that same thing. What kind of trends are you seeing? What stands out? What's less important? What's more important? And capture that. And so do this for X number of months, this, this cycle of daily, weekly, end of the month, for as long as you think you need to, to learn what you can learn from the heat that you're in. Oh, interesting. I can't tell you whether that's a month. Two months, five months, or six months. I, I can't tell you because each individual's situation will be different and their heat will be different and the length of the heat will be different and what they've learned and what they are no longer learning will change for each of them. But the thing I will add to all of this is if you're working, happen to be working with a coach or can start to work with a coach, you could do something like share those things with the coach at the end of the day or have a call with a coach once a day for 15 minutes. You're capturing those things and they're listening. And they might interject a word or two to give you some advice. And so now maybe it's a 20-minute process instead of 15 because you got a bit of a conversation going with a coach. And maybe you don't do that every day. Maybe you only do that every third day. Or maybe you only do it at the end of the week. Or maybe you only do it at the end of the month. And so another thing you can do is if you want to find a peer somewhere. And so what we call these people, coaches are, are more than this and they can do more than this, but a, an accountability partner that kind of holds you to your pattern. You know, if you know you have to share what you've done with someone else, you're more likely to do it. Well, and not only that, the other person sometimes can ask a question that will just really aid in the whole reflection, I would yeah. think. Yes. Yeah, so, so if you're willing to open yourself up to peer coaching as well, and it makes sense and it works for you, that, again, may take longer. So all of these enhancements, you know, add a little bit of time and you're going to have to be your own judge on how much time and who you could access for this. But yes, those would be the, the platinum versions of, of developing is to not be struggling just by yourself, but be getting advice along the way. Uh-huh. 
Well, and it's a simple structure too. It's a structure that anybody can use. It's not complex. It may feel uncomfortable, <laughs> but but it's a simple four question structure that's doable, I would say, for anybody. Right. That was the intention is that, again, I knew going into it that in these crises times, under these conditions, that it can't be long. It can't be lengthy. It can't be, you know, an hour long process at the end of the day. It's got to be fast and sharp. And whatever comes to mind is the big things. You know, what are the big things I intended to accomplish today? And what did I accomplish and what's different and so forth? And then progressively spending, you know, so spending five to 10 to 15 minutes a day, not so bad, spending maybe 30 minutes at the end of the week. Maybe you spend as much as an hour a month. So, I mean, if you start looking at the amount of time you're spending, it's cumulatively, it adds up to something. But at any one moment in time, it's not overwhelming. And then, you know, by the time you get to two months, three months, four months, you might be up to, uh, you know, more than an hour. You might be 90 minutes. Yeah, but still, for developing agility, that's not much time, really. That's not. It's doable. And the value, of course, is do- of doing it daily is, you know, you're as close to the experience as you can get. I mean, we, you know, when we run these things as simulations in the classroom, you know, we might interrupt and have you reflect after an hour. Uh huh. Well, you're not going to do that in the workplace during these conditions. Now, under normal operating conditions, we might get you to pause for 15 minutes a couple times a day or something. But, you know, right now, no, that's not happening. Yeah, right, right. That's right. But, you know, I would think that this would be enormously satisfying because, I mean, there's so many things that are just plain chaotic. And it, But to actually be able to step back and reflect and say, hey, I learned something. To me, right now, we all need that. We need that satisfaction that we're getting something out of this horrible time that we're in. Right. There's that additional benefit to it as well, right? That there is something valuable in it. And also, you know, just taking the moment to pause and reflect has inherent value, particularly with respect to, you know, again, resilience and other kinds of things. If you blend in some of those techniques as part of it, there's nothing wrong with it. And so, you know, you could imagine maybe doing five minutes of some kind of relaxation technique or whatever to kind of calm your mind and clear your mind before you did this as part of your resiliency practice and enter into this with a slightly calmer mind, I guess. Right. We should, yes, I I can see all kinds of benefits from this. Well, Jerry, this has just been a wonderful conversation as always. And I want to recommend that to the listeners that you go to the show notes on our website where you'll find a link to Jerry's terrific article that this conversation was based on. And I know that I've taken a lot away from the conversation, things that I can do right now that will be very satisfying. And I'm sure our listeners have too. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And your insights. Well, thank you, Kathy. I I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me and offering me the opportunity to chat with you. As you mentioned, we've had a number of great conversations over the years, and I'm sure we'll continue we'll to have, have many them. more. Exactly. <laughs> many more. Exactly. Thanks for listening to the Conscious Culture Cafe. If you liked what you heard, connect with us at millerconsultants.com. You can access the show notes and receive our free materials. 
See you next episode.